There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Bank holiday weekend. Woohoo! No work on Monday. Isn't it fantastic? Love these weekends. Absolutely do. And it is August time and we always have this one at the beginning of the month. Welcome to the show, final show of the week here at Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Thank you for joining us again today. We'll be talking to Dana in a little while. Etna Shortall is with me as well uh, talking about her new book. We have Sport with David. I have your TV theme competition and I have that family ticket to give away to the uh, horse show at the RDS coming up next weekend. But we start today with a good friend of ours. He's become our go-to two men in the United States of America. Lived in Ireland for a time. He's back home now in Texas and we chat to him now and again when issues in the States, uh, you know, are top of the news and what could be higher than the Donald Trump show rolling into Washington yesterday. He did indeed. And earlier this morning, I caught up with our very good friend, John M. Shanahan. And I began by asking John, are yesterday's charges the most serious Trump has had to face this far? They may be the most serious, but they are the, the most timely. And it's an interesting question, Jerry, because of the strategy that the American... Uh, Department of Justice Special Prosecutor Jack Smith is using in this case. Uh, and I, I have to say that we're all tipping the hat to Jack Smith. And, uh, and indeed, the former U.S. Attorney General under Mr. Trump, Bill Barr, in an interview last evening on American television, did the same. So let's, let's recap where we are on these charges, Jerry. Um, we probably know about all of the charges that have been put to Trump on the documents case uh, down in Florida. There were 40 charges altogether all on the, that case. And they had to do with a mishandling and failure to return and obstruction of justice in connection with the uh, classified documents case uh, when Mr. Trump removed and failed to return documents that were highly classified and secret uh, to the U.S. Justice Department. And so uh, that that's the case that's already uh, in progress. It's been, uh, there's been a, uh, an action before the court to set a trial date, and that trial date is going to be next spring. That's a very complicated case because uh, much of the proceedings have to be held uh, in secret because the documents that will be introduced in the case are secret. And so that is a very complicated case. Now, to your question, the Justice Department decided uh, that it would follow up on the 
uh, January 6th insurrection case. And in that case, Prosecutor Jack Smith filed charges on Thursday afternoon. And what he's done in that case uh, is to file some very simple charges uh, in which Mr. Mr. Trump has been arrested and will be uh, uh, tried. And under he's been, the charges are under what's called the Speedy Trial Act in the United States. And the Speedy Trial Act, Jerry and listeners, provides for a trial within 70 days of the filing. So what we have is uh, a case that's going to be heard in mid-October, and that case covers really just the, um, the, uh, the actions on January the 6th. And Mr. Uh, uh, Smith, the prosecutor, has, if you will, cherry-picked the charges so that he's essentially follow, filing the same charges that have already been filed and adjudicated against other defendants. And so there's now legal pre- precedent for finding, uh, for, for making a finding by the judge in the Trump case on the same basis as the others. And I think that's going to move this whole matter along much, much quicker. Now, I'm watching the commentary from this side of the Atlantic Ocean and a few things uh, that are coming up all the time through our media here. They're saying the Trump side, he can't get a fair trial in Washington. What do you say to that, John? Well, I think that's pure rubbish. Donald Trump, uh, as his own, his own attorney general said last night, is not above the law. He will get a fair trial wherever he goes on the evidence. Uh, the trial is based on the evidence, not on newspaper reports or television reports or anything else in the media. And uh, the jurors will have to decide the case on the merits. So I, I would say to that claim, rubbish, and I think... Uh, legal scholars in the United States have uniformly said that's a rubbish defense. He's also saying, and his people are saying, this is a witch hunt, a democratic witch hunt against him and the Republican Party. How do you respond to that? Well, I would say that it is a witch hunt. Indeed, we've hunted the witch, and the witch is Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the only person who is who is um, being subjected to this scrutiny. Uh, there are no covens of witches in some a place in New Hampshire or Massachusetts, Donald Trump is being prosecuted for breaking the law. And anybody else who has done the same has had a number of the people who entered the Capitol on January the 6th have also been prosecuted. They didn't label it as witch hunts either. And so Trump is being prosecuted for the very same things that they did. The other matter arising concerns the president, Joe Biden, and his son, Hunter Biden. And, and Hillary Clinton, in fact, has been mentioned as well when the issue came up uh, with her and the emails before the election when she ran against Trump when he was elected first time. That, you know, the same scrutiny is not applied to the Democrats and the issues that are coming up there with those people. Well, the answer to those things are fairly simple. I'll take them one by one. You've raised several points. The first has to do with Ms. Clinton. Ms. Clinton appeared before uh, an investigating committee of the United States Congress and testified for five days um, before that committee on the subject of her emails and her, her choice of using a private email server instead of using a government server. Now, she, get, she gave whatever reasons she felt were necessary. The Congressional Investigating Committee heard the, the testimony for a five-day period and did not charge her. Now... Uh, belatedly, in all these years thereafter, Mr. Trump is trying to make the whataboutism claim 
against Mrs. Clinton. That has absolutely nothing to do with the merits of his own actions. Mrs. Clinton's case was heard by the Congress for a period of five days. And Mr. Trump, of course, was heard by the Congress himself. He was indicted. He was impeached twice and acquitted twice because they couldn't muster enough votes to impeach him. So the same process that, that acquitted Mr. Trump also acquitted Ms. Clinton. He shouldn't be complaining about that. Now let's go to the, the second matter you've raised, which is the, the conduct of Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is the adult son of Joe Biden. There have been charges made against Mr. Biden, uh, the younger Mr. Biden, uh, for several things. One is the uh, inappropriate handling of a handgun, uh, and the second is uh, a certain contacts that he's had with a company in Ukraine. Uh, there is presently uh, a plea deal that is under under that is in the works between the younger Mr. Biden and the U.S. Justice Department. Uh, whether that uh, resolves the case or not, uh, I don't know. Uh, the plea deal is under discussion. It has not been finalized. But let's, let's step back for a moment and ask ourselves, what does that really mean in terms of the presidency of his father and the campaign upcoming between his father and possibly Mr. Trump? And the answer to that very simply, Jerry and listeners, is absolutely nothing. The father is not responsible for the affairs of his son. He had no hand or part in any of it. Um, and uh, uh, those who would play the game of whataboutism, a story I've heard any number of times here in the United States, miss the essential point. Uh, the business of the son is none of the business of the father. Now, besides the cases we're talking about, you have the hush money as well to Stormy Daniels, and there are other cases pending in a couple of Mm -hmm. states in the United States to come. And yet, John, despite all of this, it seems to galvanise his support within the Republican Party and with his electorate, these adoring fans who go to these rallies that he holds. (laughs) He seems to be getting stronger in the polls, John. Well, he's getting stronger in the same sense that... Uh, the famous uh, promoter, circus promoter P.T. Barnum, uh, got famous by for attracting people to his circuses. Uh, and Barnum is supposedly have, to, to have said, "There's a sucker born every minute." I would apply the same uh, lesson to Donald Trump. Someone has re- recently opined uh, that Donald Trump is in fact not running for the presidency; he's running to stay out of jail. And so let's look at the presidential campaign of Donald Trump, perhaps through a new set of eyes. Is he really running for the presidency? I would say, and many others would say, no, he's not. He's running for two, for two reasons. First, because in the, in the course of running for the presidency, Department of Justice policy, and I underscore policy, not law, Department of Justice policy says that we will not, we the Justice Department, will not prosecute a a candidate during the course of the campaign. Well, the campaign technically hasn't started. Mr. Trump is not the nominee of his party, and he will not be until next summer. So what that means is that uh, the Justice Department is not restrained in any way from prosecuting Mr. Trump until such time as the Republican Party holds its nominating convention next summer, almost a year from now, and and presumptively nominates Mr. Trump. 
So that hasn't happened yet. But Trump has announced that he intends to run, and he's out raising money. And what is he using the money for? And here the public records tell a very interesting story. He is using the money to pay his legal bills. And in fact, he has paid over $25 million in legal bills out of his campaign fund already. He has raised well over $200 million in his campaign fund, and he is using that campaign fund to pay not only his legal bills, but the legal legal bills of his co-defendants and associates, including a number of lawyers. And so what we have is a campaign that isn't a campaign, and we have a fundraising initiative for political purposes that is essentially paying Mr. Trump to stay out of jail. And I hope that puts it in context. It certainly does, John. So here is the question. The courts will sit and judge in these cases, but especially the one that he's been charged with yesterday. If convicted, will Donald Trump go to jail? Well, that's an interesting question. We don't know the answer. There's no precedent for it. And as a president, he is entitled to Secret Service protection for the rest of his life, whether convicted or not. So let's take the... the the, uh, the notion that you've suggested that he might be convicted and that the question then is before the court how to send him to jail. He's obviously going to earn a jail, jail sentence if he is convicted. What does the judge do? Now, we don't know, and there's all one can only speculate. I would speculate that the simplest thing to do would be for the United States government to simply take over his Florida residence uh, and assign that residence to the U.S. Federal Bureau of Prisons and make the Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida essentially Mr. Trump's prison to keep him in that residence, uh, limiting or excluding any travel uh, thereafter and having him serve under essentially secret service supervision for the rest of his life as a resident in his own Mar-a-Lago establishment. That's just my personal speculation. I certainly haven't talked to, to the U.S. Justice Department or any federal judge on that so, score, but it would seem to me to be a reasonable answer to how to lock up a former president. Today, as we talk about this, with the election some time away, will Donald Trump, or can you see Donald Trump, getting the Republican nomination and becoming president again? Well, uh, as, as to the first question... Uh, will he obtain the Republican nomination? Uh, I think that's, uh, in today's environment, I would say the answer is yes. The answer, however, will change based, I think, with the trial coming up this fall on the January 6th matters. Uh, there are four counts. If he's found guilty in that trial, uh, that's going to be well before the nomination uh, time and well before the convention, and public opinion may change significantly. Uh, I should point out that the American Constitution has no provision for excluding a person's candidacy for presidency uh, if that person is convicted, save only on one thing, and that's the 14th Amendment, where he would be convicted of insurrection. There is no pending insurrection case before the courts, and so he would not be he would not be tried on that case and so then if he is found guilty uh, in uh, in october uh, the question then arises can he continue to still run for the office of presidency and still run for the nomination 
So as to the nomination in the summer, yes, he can still run. As to the election in the fall, this may come as a surprise. But yes, under the United States Constitution, even as a convicted felon, in all matters excepting the 14th Amendment charge, even as a convicted felon, he may run for presidency and he might be elected. Okay, And so now you have the case of a president who is currently in office, elected in office, but he's also a convicted felon subject to a jail sentence. What happens at that point? Well, Jerry, it's uncharted territory. I would suspect that he would try to, to immediately uh, pardon himself. There's conflicting views on the law in that matter. But let's hope to God we don't get to any of those things and that we dispose of Mr. Trump and his ambitions by the time that the first cases are heard in October of this year. John, it's always a pleasure and a privilege to hear your opinion on the American political situation. Thank you so much for joining me on Late Lunch today. And this story has a way to run. And I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again as the weeks and months unfold. John Shanahan, thanks a million. Indeed, Jerry. Great to talk to you. Best wishes to you and your audience. Thanks for your messages to the show today. Frank's been on to say almost all the presidents of the United States of America have dark secrets. It's just that Trump is outspoken, Jerry, and I believe John is anti-Trump. We were talking to John Shanahan there at the top of the show. Jack says, I've listened to interview after interview, and you have to admit there's a media bias against Trump. I think it's split, to be honest with you, Jack. I think the way it, it pans out is CNN would be uh, pro-Biden and Democrat and look at Fox pro-Trump and his end of things. And I think America is like that. It's absolutely polarised, split down the middle. But there's one thing you cannot deny, and it's this. The phone call he made looking for the votes, I think it was in Georgia, he said to the guy presiding over the election there, I need so many votes. What was that about? You know, he was looking for somebody to do something absolutely wrong. And that's on the record. And I honestly don't believe he didn't condemn fully what happened uh, uh, in Washington in uh, January uh, when they charged and stormed uh, the uh, central government there on that day. And he, you know, he can say what he likes. We look back on that as well. He asked them to be peaceful on that as well. But look, I, I just think... Um, the charges are serious, they're levied against them and they're going to be heard in a court of law. They're, you know, they're trying to say there's no fairness in this, etc. Really, the justice system and democracy is in trouble in America, in my book, anyway. No matter what way you're looking at it. Anyway, a lot, long way to run in this. And uh, I just feel that, that he just didn't accept the result of the election. He wanted to stay in power by fair means or foul. Would you ever think I'd be reading a weather forecast like that on the 4th of August? It really is like uh, late autumn, winter time, to be honest with you. We need all the prayers we can get to help with the weather for one thing. And with that in mind, there's a huge event happening on the Hill of Slain this weekend on Sunday in conjunction with World Youth Day. Archbishop Eamon Martin will celebrate Mass there and it's going to be a really, really special occasion. I know there are lots of people heading for Slane. There are very special people there as well, like Sister Breege McKenna and the lady who I'm going to talk to next, who I so enjoyed her company when she was in studio with me here a little while back. Dana, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Jerry. I can return the compliment. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you in, indeed. Well, listen, will you say a few prayers for us on Sunday that this weather turns before the children go back to school? 
I know, it's kind of been an unbelievable kind of batch of rain. <laughs> it has to stop sometimes. Yeah. But we've so many people doing Venus for good weather tomorrow. Yes. And uh, I have no doubt it's going to be uh, a fine day. Yeah, now Sunday, actually you're right, I was just looking Sunday, it's probably the best day of the weekend, so that's good news for the event on the Hill of Slane. This is in conjunction with World Youth Day, you're going to be there as I mentioned, Sister Breege McKenna. Now when I mention Sister Breege and yourself, your new song called Light the Fire, which we're going to hear uh, shortly, tell us the story of you and Sister Breege and how this whole thing came about, the new song. Well, first of all, we've been friends with Sister Breege from the 1970s, a very long time because she uh, worked alongside my husband's brother, the late father, Kevin Scallon. And, and so, you know, they're, they're very dear to us, really very dear to us and great people. But about 14 years ago, Father Kevin said, you know, we need a new hymn to St. Patrick because he's a saint for today and he's for the whole world. To be truthful now, I... <laughs> I didn't know how to about St. Patrick, you know, to me, he was shamrocks and snakes and green and banners on St. Patrick's Day. Well, about eight years later, we got the most of the song, Light the Fire. And it was only in January of this year that the kind of missing bit came. But I was asked to launch it in the St. Patrick's Centre in Downpatrick, a place I really didn't know a whole lot about. It's absolutely stunning. And it's the only place in the world that has audiovisual, everything is centred around St. Patrick. He's buried on the hill behind them with St. Patrick, St. Bridget, St. Columba are in the one grave. And I've learned so much about him. I mean, he is a saint for times. He was human trafficked. He lived in slavery. He was, at that time, Ireland was just pagan and human sacrifice. And very oppressed people. And he escaped and he came back because he loved the people. And when he lit the fire on Slane, it was almost 2,000 years ago. In 2033, it'll be 2,000 years. That faith has been passed from generation to generation to generation. And here we are. We're the generation holding it. Do we pass it on or do we just let it die? And the song, uh, we launched it there. St. Patrick, we were in St. Patrick's in New York with Sister Breach McKenna. And there's a beautiful statue to St. Patrick there. That cathedral in New York was built with the pennies of Irish immigrants by our ancestors that fled there. And Damien suddenly had a thought, my husband Damien, he said, we need to go to the Hill of Slain, we need to light the fire again. And he asked Sister Breach, uh, you can't get Sister Breach for two or three years in advance, but he asked her, and she immediately said yes. So then Damien said, it would be wonderful if we'd maybe, maybe 400 people. It would be wonderful. And Father Pablo is coming. Well, it has been like a snowball going down a hill. It has grown and grown. We're very honoured that Archbishop Ian Martin, who is the successor to St. Patrick, he said he would like to be there. We'll have the rosary, we will have mass. The Archbishop will light the fire, as St. Patrick did, and we'll have healing, Eucharistic healing, very powerful healing. 
there's so much going on throughout this whole country and there's people coming from every corner of this country to Slane. It could be a happy day and it could be people who are just good people and you'll feel loved and welcomed. Yes, there are thousands. And that analogy you made about the snowball, you know, uh, rolling down the hill and, and growing in size, that's a very good analogy in terms of the numbers that have grown uh, day on day that are heading for Slane this very weekend. St. Patrick's Cathedral, I'm familiar with in New York. It's a, just a, a most wonderful place, Dana. Oh, it is. And um, I think the thing about it, it's an emotional place. Mm. You stand there, mm. you think of the Irish people who went there with, with nothing, fleeing, really, from from a country that was they weren't able to make life in and weren't able to live in. But the love they have for Ireland, and they literally the pennies that the Irish people built that cathedral. Mm. And, and it's very emotional. And Damien was, as I say, in front of the statue of St. Patrick. And, you know, we've had, we've had little miracles happening all the time to make this happen. We've never organised anything like this, Jerry. Like we go to things that other people organise. Yes. And Terry, he, he wasn't able to sleep through the nights for nights. He looked dreadful in the morning. I said, Did you not? She said, No, Porterloo's. I was thinking all night about Porterloo's. <laughs> but the parish has been wonderful, Father Richard and his team. And there's another wonderful team. Uh, uh, they're called the Apostles of Love. Uh, in Colin, uh, there's two deacons there, Deacon John Taft and uh, Deacon Pat Butterley. Yeah. They have been unbelievably supportive. And just people coming forward that you don't even know, and you don't know them personally. Just wonderful people. There's a statue of St. Patrick from Cooley, and with the statue of Our Lady of Knock is coming. The actual platform where the, the, the Mass will be held, it was donated by a lady who was sitting next to another lady who was coming to it. I mean, it's just been unbelievable. Mm. And, and you know, I think it's a, a sign that, as you said, people are looking for something at this time because we are living in a very fractious time in this country and in the world and I think people are looking for healing and something to cling to and I always say it whenever there's a tragedy Dana uh, we see it this week those poor two girls in uh, Clonus and all that happened there at the end of the day you know people can say what they like we have nothing if we don't have a faith well how I found my life, Jerry. You know, people think, oh, they must be very holy. They're going to go to mass or they're going to pray. Further from the truth, you're going because you need to. You're going because you have to, to, to be able to keep a handle on your life and, and your own well-being. So we, we have an epidemic of suicides up and down this country. And our beautiful young people, I mean... We we need them and, and we want them to be to be happy and and they're going to be the next generation that's going to be leading this country. So you know you just love them so much that our hearts are broken for those wee girls and so many beautiful lives that have just been lost to suicide. People want hope, you know they want hope and they want love. And they want to feel loved and appreciated. And 
I mean, for me anyway, like God, God is love and he knows every hair on our heads. And so when Patrick lit that fire, it was a fire of faith and hope and love. So that's why we're welcomed around the world. Mm. That's why St. Patrick's Day is the biggest celebration of any saint throughout the world. Mm. Because it went from this country throughout the world. So we're going to go up there and light that fire again. Brilliant. And it's Sunday. What time does it start at, Dana? Well, it'll start at about 12, right about 12, and we'll have a singing. And then we have, um, uh, we have, <laughs> trying to think, but we have the, the, the rosary, mm. which will be led by different, uh, like the men's rosary, they're going to lead it, and the affirmed and accepted a miracle in Medjugorje is a young Irish man who went there 10 years with his mother in a wheelchair and will walk up the hill of Slain. He's a recognised being a miracle. And we have uh, uh, representatives uh, Nick Mahuna, Mahuna, who will be representing all the wonderful work done for pro-life in this country. Protection of life. Protection of mothers protection of elderly life at all its stages. And we'll have youth representing the young people in World Youth Day and our young people who've gone there who can't be with us. And then we have two, three wonderful ladies, Martina Purdy and Elaine Kelly from the St. Patrick Centre. They've developed the, the pilgrimage of St. Patrick. You walk in his footsteps. And a wonderful lady, Katharina Pettit, who has spent her life going around this country with the relic of St. Patrick, and she's bringing it to the hill. So we'll have the rosary, and then we'll have the mass, and we'll have um, Eucharistic healing. And Sister Breach McKenna and Father Pablo will lead that. And, you know, you'd just love to hear her talk and tell you of all the beautiful miracles that she's witnessed. And if she says herself, I don't heal people. The fella I work for does. He's the boss, <laughs> you know. But really spectacular, really spectacular healings that take place are not always physical. But my God, we all need healing, you know, in some way or another. Yeah. We all need peace and healing. Absolutely. Look, we're going to leave it on those words today. 12 noon, the Hill of Slain. What a lineup you have on Sunday. Everybody welcome. It's lovely to talk to you and we're going to have a listen now to your new song called Light the Fire. Good luck with all on Sunday, Dana. Thank you. God bless. Take care of yourself. Bye. I am Patrick, a sinner. As I arise today, May God's strength lead me, may God's might uphold me, and God's wisdom guide me. Light the flame in my heart once again, light the flame in my heart once again, and the fire will burn. The fire will burn in the darkness As on that ancient hill The embers burning still 
Comedy. Classic comedy. On the late lunch. I love comedy. She's big in America. She really is. She's the cleanest comedian, they say, in the country. Yeah, and she has a lot of life experience. Here is Miss Karen Morgan talking about the generations. After the millennials come Gen Z. Gen Z was born between 1995 and 2015. Gen Z, these are my kids. Good luck, America. (laughs) Gen Z doesn't know how to write a check. They don't know how to address an envelope. They don't know how to read cursive. They don't know how to read a paper map. They can't get anywhere unless there's a GPS map on their phone. All I'm saying is if Gen Z takes over the world, it's going to be pretty easy to get it back. going to write our battle plans in cursive on a piece of paper (laughs) and then mail it to ourselves in envelopes. (laughs) Did I forget anybody? Did I forget any generations? Thank you, Gen X. I didn't forget Gen X. I was born the first year of Gen X like you and I'm so glad you're here. See, here's who forgot Gen X last year. CBS News (laughs) forgot Gen X, a whole generation of people, they did silent generation, boomers, and they went down to millennials and post They forgot 65 million of us. But here's all you need to know about Gen X. We don't care. We don't care. We raised ourselves. We don't care. As a matter of fact, we kind of like it. We kind of like it. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That you left us off your little list, CBS News. We're like the secret dive bar that only the locals know about. We don't have to advertise and we're never going out of business. Generation X, we are the latchkey kids that were raised by the boomer parents. We sat in the way, way back seat of our mom's station wagon, rear facing at the people behind us. Just, just waving. You know, nobody wore a seatbelt, not even in the front seat. If your mom's arm wasn't strong enough, you deserve to go through the windshield. We're all still here. We're never going out of business. <laughs> we didn't have helicopter parents, and in fact, we had the opposite of helicopter parents. We had Home Depot parents, <laughs> where it looks like there should be someone in the store there that could help you, but there's not. <laughs> no one's coming. You're on your own. This is Home Depot. Nobody cared that we were bored. Nobody cared what our grades were. Nobody cared that we were eating lunch out of a lunchbox that was filled with rust. <laughs> Certainly no one was arranging a play date. <laughs> Here's how my mom arranged a play date. At eight o'clock in the morning, my mama would say, y'all go outside and play. Boom, lock the door. She locked the door. We weren't coming back in there. We were outside all day. We didn't have anything to eat. We didn't have anything to drink. We didn't have a juice box or any goldfish crackers. If we were thirsty, we drank out of where? Yes, yes, the hose. And we're all still here. We're never going out of business. So true, isn't it? I remember those times when you went out and you were told, away you go and you played for the day and you arrived home for your dinner. Those were the days. Yes, uh, bringing us a comedy today on Late Lunch, the wonderful Karen Morgan. After the break, I'm joined by somebody who I've spoken to on a number of occasions in the past. She's former Sunday Times journalist, most successful author. Etna Shortall is with us next. I always enjoy having a chat with my next guest. Her fifth book has recently been published. It's called The Lodgers, and I'm delighted to say hello again to Etna Shortall. Hi, Etna. 
Hi, Jerry. I know I must have another book out when I'm talking to you. <laughs> Thanks so much. That's a real compliment. I'm so thank we're away we're away to a flyer here today. Thank you indeed. Yes, indeed. You're very kind to us. You've been with us right from the start with the first one, Love in Row Forty Seven, and all subsequently. I want to ask you first. Uh, this is your first book since you packed in the Sunday Times gig. Um, yes. It's a bit of a marker, isn't it, that you always had the other running uh, alongside your writing. Are you better freed up now to concentrate on this? Yeah, well, I suppose uh, I am, but it's um, I had... I've had two children in relatively quick succession. So mm. it wasn't just the day job. It wasn't just the Sunday Times. It was the kids the day job and the writing the book so there was just two of those things are perfectly fine to balance Mm. but three was just pushing it so something had to give so yeah I left the Sunday Times last August um, and yeah look I just I wouldn't have finished this book if I hadn't left and I probably wouldn't write any other books you know the day job will always seem like the more immediate because Mm. it is the more immediate thing the more important thing and everything else ends up taking a back seat so I kind of had to like make the leap if I was going to keep writing books yeah. So, yeah I'm a year nearly a year in now ah, and, listen. Uh, no regrets no nary end yes no regrets for sure I saw a lovely interview with you in the Irish Times was it with Roisin Ingle Yes, that's uh, right. What, yeah, what, yeah, what a beautiful, again. beautiful interview, I have to say. So the table's turned on you as a journalist being interviewed by a legendary journalist. But I love one line that you mentioned the children there. I don't think I appreciated how much headspace children would take up. Come on, Etna. <laughs> well, I look, I thought about the sleepless nights. I knew, you know, I'd be running around and I'd be exhausted. But what I honestly, what I didn't count on was how much of the time when they're not there, mm. you're still thinking about them I like, and you know in nice ways sure but I even mean in the logistics like planning meals for that evening because if it's just you you can eat at any time and you can go to the shops whenever you want but kids need routine they have to go to bed by a certain time so you're planning dinners there's always doctor's appointments you know you're checking yeah. in on trying to get results to things making sure you've got enough childcare. like the I, yeah I, I think really I didn't appreciate how much time the logistics would take up, you know, well, in your head as well as the practicality. Yes. Anyway, don't worry. It's always like that. <laughs> you never forget. You can never leave them off your mind no matter what age they are. But that's uh, that's for down the road. Look, come back to the book, The Largers. May I say to you, you're fantastic at marrying your life and your own experiences and family with topical issues of the day. And you've done this here magnificently, may I say. Um, your, your granny's plays a big part in this book. Yeah, well, I'd say, I guess just very briefly, it's about a woman, an older woman who takes two younger lodgers into her big rambly seaside house in mm. Dublin. Um, and it's kind of about, they all have their secrets and there's a central mystery at the heart of it and there's a bit of a romance and, and all that. But the house that she takes them into, so she's, Tessa is about to turn 70, she's a very healthy woman, very active life, but then she has a fall and then she can't, get around as easily. She uses a stick to get around, which is fine, but she lives in a house that is beautiful on the outside and beautiful on the inside, but entirely impractical. doesn't have central heating. It's impossible to keep clean. And she just can't, she can't live somewhere like that at that, uh, you know, with, with that kind of ill health on her own. And yeah, so the house that I'm basing that on is, it's, it's based, it's, it is my granny's house. Yes. My granny lives in rural Ireland, but I just moved the geography of it. But the layout of the house is the exact same. And my granny lives in a house that is, um, 
is like I think you know is officially a minor mansion, which sounds very grand. But <laughs> trust me, we are not we are not grand people. It, it, it was built in the seventeen hundreds, and it is a beautiful kind of architectural building. Yeah, but. She has no central heating. Uh, she is two of the four floors closed off. You know, like it, it's impossible to keep the house in the kind of good nick it needs to be in because because unless you're extremely wealthy, like those houses are so beautiful and such an important part of our heritage. But it's very hard for normal people on average incomes to live in them. And I guess that's kind of what I'm reflecting in the book. But I love the house. I love my granny's house. And mm. even even if corners of it aren't in the best condition, I, I still love it. I love its history. And of course, like my personal family links. And I guess in, in the book, I'm exploring that with Tessa, like the idea that maybe a house isn't really suitable for you anymore. But you just can't give it up because you have all these other associations. You know, it's not mm. just bricks and mortar. It holds memories and people and, and, and all that kind of thing. Mm. And there's a lot of pressure on people of an age to downsize, isn't there? And I often think, you yeah. know what I mean, you can never, ever... I, I know some people do it, but for others, it's your right to remain in your home and where all your life memories are. Absolutely, absolutely. It's your choice, your house. And yeah, and I I, I mean, I kind of mentioned that briefly in the book. Like, uh, there's something patronising in that. I do think people, we can be patronising towards um, older people. And um, and I think, you know, I want to try the book where the two protagonists are, I wanted, my, my main aim was to write an intergenerational kind of relationship. Yeah. So this is mainly told from the point of view of Tessa, who's 70, and then Chloe, who's in her 20s, and they end up living together, which is an unlikely match, but it's just about the dynamics and, you know, the roles they play in each other's lives. But I I often think that, like, I want to write an older character. I have so many fundamental, important older people in my life, and I would not dream to patronise them. I wouldn't dare to Mm. condescend or to tell them that they should give up their homes or not, because they're, you know, because they're as sharp as me or sharper than me. Like, I talk about my grandmother, who, who I'm quite close to, and she's in her 80s, and like she is as sharp as a whip. Like I was saying, you know, when I was pregnant, the first time I was pregnant, she knew I was pregnant before I had told anyone, before I had told my parents. She could just tell instinctively. She misses nothing. Mm. So I wouldn't dare to talk down to her and I wouldn't dare to tell her to give up her house either. <laughs> anyway, you've inherited the DNA. Remember that too, young woman. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is, you were out with placards and protests. This is what I'm talking about. You linking your, your work back oh, yeah. to your own life. And of course, in the book, uh, there's a parish hall that they want to get rid of and replace it with a hotel. Uh, but, you know, there's a huge uh, uprising in the community. And, and you experienced this yourself. Yeah, well, I know I wasn't involved in this direct protest, but yeah. my, 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 near my parents' house where I grew mm. up, the, the parish hall in Drumcondra in Dublin, was uh, it was closed down. There was a Montessori being run for it. It was used for like Meals on Wheels, you know, local dancing classes. Like it was a great community amenity. And then it was it was um, under the control of the church. And the church, I don't know what exactly they were planning to do, but they 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 uh, closed up the Montessori and they made all the classes leave. And the hall was just sitting unused for months. I assume they were going to develop something on the site. But anyway, in in real life, that is actually rode back. Um, surprisingly, because the little guy never wins in these kind of, you know, news stories where, you, where you're going up against development. But in the book, I didn't know that at the time. And I, I just wanted to write about a group of people that were trying to do something for the community good. And they were going up against money, maybe, or more power than what they had. And that there's still a chance for them to, to triumph. Um, and I, 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 I love um, protests. I think if you really believe in something, it's a lovely way to get your kind of frustrations out in a very constructive way. And 
like more recently we had a protest on our road because the, I live in a very no- narrow road in Dublin and the driving can be insane. People driving on footpaths, like mountain footpaths and just driving along. So a lot of the neighbours went out with placards every Tuesday morning and we stood out there and I thought, oh, this would be, I would feel so awkward standing on my street getting angry. But it actually wasn't angry at all. It was lovely, lovely, mild-mannered protest and all the neighbours got to talk and there's a great sense of community. And we have actually gotten some change from the council. They, they've, they've kind of improved the roads. So too boring to go into how, but to do a parking and stuff. And, and it has made a great difference. So actually sometimes that people power does work, which is very satisfying. Oh yes and uh, long may that be the case for for sure. The other thing of course is uh, tying in with the housing crisis we have and of course so many people have fled the war in Ukraine and come to this country looking for shelter and peace and to uh, try and get their lives going again. That influenced you? Yeah well I I started writing Right. I, I tried to give myself a year to write a book and I started writing this one exactly when, when Russia first invaded the Ukraine. And I just, you know, I'm like, I, it's funny because you get desensitized and you get used to news stories. But at the time, it was so shocking in those first few weeks and everyone was just glued to the news and I was no different. And I, re- I was getting no writing done. This is the problem of being self-employed. Like you can get distracted by news stories, you know, and I was just following updates. And it was so grim, it was so grim. And then suddenly there was this smaller story about Irish people offering up rooms in their houses or houses they had. And, you know, some of those offers weren't weren't ultimately taken up. But the idea of it, the generosity, the selflessness of it, like it was exactly what I needed to read, like to kind of restore my faith in humanity when you have this brute on the other side of Europe carrying out absolute atrocities. And then to know that there are just normal people nearer to me at, at home who are making really kind offers. And I suppose I, I, the, the book isn't about refugees, all, the characters are Irish in it, but it, it's about that selflessness of, you know, offering something up for someone that isn't your family, that you don't have to do anything for them, but you're just, you're, you, you know, you're you're working for some kind of um, common good, I guess. And so, and I'm also just curious about the idea of um, someone opening up their house to people they have nothing in common with on paper, like, you know, as as is the case in my book, but as was probably the case with people that did take in refugees, you have people of completely different ages, social status, incomes, backgrounds, you know, from different places. And like, how do they get on when you suddenly they find um, themselves living with each other? That was that was kind of very interesting to me as well. Mm, that uh, sense of community and. Uh uh, as you mentioned, you went out in your street for, with your own road protest or that as well, and you meet people, and suddenly you, uh, you know what I mean, you 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 get to know people as well. That's something you're passionate about. That's something that's that's that appears through your work. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, most of my stories have um, uh, an element of mystery and they're set in neighbourhoods and they have an element of romance. But it's hard to say exactly what combines them all. You know, they're they're not exactly the same. I I just would find it very difficult to write books like that. But I suppose one thing that I do find running through them all is community, you know. Mm. Like I often have, have a protagonist and... They, they they need help and they get it from maybe an unlikely group of people or an unlikely cast of friends. And I love writing that. I love the dynamics because I you know I try to make the books very fun and funny and and that like when you've got lots of people from different backgrounds, it's great breeding ground for un, for misunderstandings. But it's also great for empathy. I think you know for for having to consider people with different backgrounds to you and people that come from different. 
uh, different approaches and that you all kind of want the same ultimate good goal. Um, and yeah, I guess I, I am interested in that. I think it's a given that we all support our families, but it's not a given that we do something for people beyond that. Mm. Does your granny read your books? Well, she hasn't read this one yet, I don't think, anyway, but she has read all of the others as mm. far as I know, yes. Yeah. And she doesn't really read much anymore, so I think she mainly reads because she knows she's she's in the books somewhere, <laughs> something she said or some yeah. character. So I think I think she's reading out of slight, uh, slight vanity, you know. Yeah, well, she'll, um, she'll love this one. Yes, yeah, I know. I know but she, she's monitoring me, like she's been, you know, reading <laughs> interviews or she's listening to a couple of interviews and then she'd be sending me her thoughts afterwards. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is, despite the, the, the common thread of community and the power of people and things like that, all your books are quite different, aren't they? Mm, yeah, I know, I know. And it would be easier to just write the same thing over and over <laughs> Don't again. Don't do it, don't do it, Edna, no. No, I know, but I, I would say like, first two are kind of love stories the next two are more you know they're about like um, they're like commu- uh, what would I say suburban mysteries I guess mm. and they've got like a, you know Cassie parents at the school gates and that kind of thing and then I think The Lodgers is really a mix of that I I, I like to describe it as a, a love story wrapped in a mystery I guess yes. so it's, it's a bit of both you know and you know when you know this one is out now and doing really well like the others before it are the juices flowing? I, I need to ask you this. You are working on something else, but does it does it well up easily for you? Um, I guess the idea does. I think the best stage is the idea, the plotting. That's when it's perfect, you know. And then when you go to put the pen on the paper, you end up wrecking it all. Whatever's in your whatever's in your head is never as perfect on the page as it is in your mind. But I guess I. I find, yeah, coming up with the initial concept easy, first draft hard. And I would say for anyone that's thinking about writing a book, know that the first draft is meant to be awful and hard, but do it anyway. And then the second draft, more enjoyable, more enjoyable, more enjoyable as you turn it into something that's, you know, ultimately publishable. So it's stages, you know. Like I'm, I'm, I'd say there are certain times of the year where I'm not maybe a joy to live with because I... <laughs> having an existential crisis as I as I write the book or, or like or, or and when I publish the book you know it's a bit of a roller coaster when you publish a book mm. it's fun but it's it's I guess it's um, yeah it's just totally different from writing in your own in a room you know so it can be a bit of a shock to the system going out and talking about yourself yeah you have a multi-book deal I know is that pressure in itself to deliver like I suppose you could look at it that way, but I I like that. Like coming from a journalist background, I like a deadline. You know, without that, I think I'd faff around around forever and I'd never finish it. Even when I wrote my first book and I had no book deal at all, I gave myself a self-imposed deadline. You know, I had three months off work and I was like, well, that's it. You've three months to get a first draft done. I kind of I kind of need it. So no, I, for some people, I guess why it would be, but I think for me, it's good, or I'd never get anything done. <laughs> I love that. Yes, I'm a bit like that myself. When uh, I'm looking at the headlights, uh, you do it and you deliver. And, and, and that is uh, me as well, just like yourself. Listen, the book is fantastic. You get better and better, may I say. The Lodgers, it's called, by Etna Shortall. You love this book, folks. Get it, read it and enjoy it. Until the next time. 
You know when you're talking Thanks, to me, Jerry. as you said, the book is on yeah, the way. I have a book out. Yeah. <laughs> bye, Lovely bye. to talk to you. Take care now. Bye bye. That's the wonderful Etna Shorthall, author of The Lodgers. Despite our so-called all-inclusive society, why am I not surprised there's an obvious non-ecumenical slant to that World Youth Day? It is under the auspices of the Catholic Church, but I'm sure you'd be welcome no matter what denomination you are. They started it up. They run it each year have an issue with that to be honest with you the uh, show jumpers name I was looking for won the Aga Khan three years in a row 77 to 79 won a record four consecutive Hickstead Derby win 76 to 79 two silver medals at the World Show Jumping Championships uh, and the horses he uh, was on board the likes of Pele and the wonderful Boomerang Eddie Mackin was the name I was looking for. Eddie Mackin and going along to the horse show is Paul Hackett and his family. Well done to you, Paul. They'll be in touch from the RDS to arrange. Let's listen again to our TV theme. It's not Grand Designs, it's not Downton Abbey, it's not Emmerdale, but it is Countryfile every Sunday evening, unmissable on the BBC, just ahead of Antiques Roadshow. That's my watching on Sundays when I'm at home. Anyway, Countryfile is the answer. Siobhan Riley will be in touch. We'll send it in the post to you today. You got it absolutely correct. Well done to you. Now, for the final time this week, let's have a listen to this one. Five, four, three, two, one. Counting down the top five songs from this week of yesteryear. And today it's... The big number one from this week in 1983. However, the song was originally written in 1969 by Marvin Gaye, Barrett Strong and Norman Whitfield. Gaye recorded it. It was the B-side to his 1969 hit Too Busy Thinking About My Baby. But when it was picked up in 83 by Paul Young, it became a massive number one in the UK. It was on top spot for three weeks. It's a classic. Yes, and the man who made it his own and it made his career, it's Paul Young with the hat song. Number one, 
from this week in 1983 in our top five countdown. Paul Young, wherever I lay my hat, that's my home. And we will bring you another top four countdown next week. We're not here Monday, it's a bank holiday. But we are in Clarehead on Tuesday with Late Lunch coming to you live from the pier in Clarehead next Tuesday between 1.30 and 3.30. If you're in that neck of the woods, do say hello to us. Brian Farley and myself will be down there on Tuesday next with the show final break of the day and the weekend late lunch and afterwards it's sport with David Sheehan. David Sheehan standing by as usual this time Friday to look ahead to the sporting action beginning this evening with the League of Ireland and Drogheda at Dalyman Park to take on Bohemians. Afternoon David. How are you Jerry? Good thanks for joining us again. Bows, Drogheda, uh, they haven't had much luck the drogs against Bows this year. No, they haven't. Um, they lost 3-1 there earlier in the season and gave away a couple of softish goals. I think I remember Jordan Flores scored a free kick early in that game and it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't right in the corner. And I know Kevin after the game was a bit disappointed because they'd worked on, on trying to keep him out from set pieces. And, uh, you know, they conceded a couple of softish goals in the second half. I think Freddie Draper equalised for them that day and, of course, he's gone now. And then the game at, 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 um, at United Park, I said, at Weavers Park even now, they were they lost that game two 0 but again it was it was during that run of games where they didn't get any wins, but they were really unfortunate to not pick up a few results along the way, you know. So, um, yeah, they were a bit unlucky that day that they didn't come away with something tonight. It's actually a really a really crucial game, Jerry, just because of the way the fixtures have fallen. There's only two matches on this evening. Sligo were playing Pats over at the Showgrounds, and Drogheda had obviously taken on Bohemians at Dalyman Park now. If Drogheda were to win tonight, they would go ahead of Sligo in the table if Sligo don't don't win against Pats. Cork City aren't playing until Sunday, and they're away to Shamrock Rovers. You'd have to fancy Shamrock Rovers to win that game. So if Drogheda were to get a win tonight, difficult though as, as it would be, they would be nine points clear of, of Cork City. The other thing to mention as well is that Sligo-Pats game tonight. If Pats win tonight, with Shamrock Rovers not playing until Sunday, Pats go within a point to Shamrock Rovers. So mm. there's a huge amount a huge amount riding on a couple of games tonight, even though there isn't a full round of fixtures this evening. So if Drogheda were to get a win there this evening, that would be massive for them. Um, obviously, they lost Manny Adig-Boyega yesterday. I would expect that you'd see Evan Weir move into centre-back. Connor Kane possibly could start tonight at left-back after coming back in. So, you know, they're missing, obviously, Manny. He was really good for them this year. But they're in good form. There's a good mood in the camp. Bose struggled past UCD last week, so it's not not a, a home win guaranteed by any means. So I, I'd fancy Drogheda to, to come away from there with a point and maybe maybe sneak a win. Maybe Kyle Robinson gets his first goal since coming in. You never know. But it's 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 getting to that stage of the season now, Jerry. We're into the last 10 games almost. So every win you can get and every bit of distance you can put between the team below you is going to be crucial. So mm. it's a really big one for them tonight. I admire your optimism. You always are. I, I have to say, Dalymount Park has been a graveyard since I started supporting Drogheda, but hopefully that will change this evening. On to Sunday, Dundalk smarting from that loss in Europe last night. They have to get back on track against Shelburne, and two big new signings may make their debuts. Yeah, absolutely. And and a bit like what we were talking about there with Drogheda possibly leapfrogging Sligo. If Shelburne were to beat Dundalk on Sunday, they would go ahead of Dundalk in the table. So, yeah, Daryl Horgan is back and got a, a rapturous reception last night from the Oriel Park faithful. Unfortunately, the game didn't go the way they would have wanted. It was a disappointing enough result for them in the end. And over those two legs, I think Stephen O'Donnell was really, really disappointed with how they performed. Sam Durant as well in. So, you know, he's, I guess, a bit of an unknown quantity. Daryl Horgan, we know what he can bring, but he's, he's a few years older than he was, you know, when he was there in his first spell. So if he hits the ground running, he'd be a huge, a huge addition to the Dundas squad. But you mentioned that short turnaround. 
the deflation that they'll be feeling having been knocked out of Europe as well. So, you know, Damien Duff will be rubbing his hands coming to Oriel and, and you know, Shelburne aren't in the greatest of form themselves. Dundalk are in slightly better league form, but Shelburne are always tricky to play against. They don't make life easy for you. So that's going to be a really difficult game for Dundalk. They're at home. They have they have better players than Shelburne, I think it's fair to say. Uh, marginally so, I suppose you might argue we're looking at the table. But if they can re- regroup and pick themselves up, they should be okay to win that one. But it just depends on what the mentality is like after the game last night. And, of course, the physical state with those two games coming back-to-back. So it's going to be a tricky one for them. I, I the feeling Shelburne might, might sneak a point out of that. There you go. So uh, that match is on Sunday afternoon. Now, the uh, championship and the leagues in England begin this weekend, starting tonight. But the uh, curtain raiser to the Premier League, which begins next weekend, is the Charity Shield. Treble winning Manchester City up against their nearest rivals last season, Arsenal. Can Arsenal push them again this year? And what do you think of this game? Ah, uh, yeah. Look, the the community shield. I suppose it's a tricky, it's a tricky one to call. Uh, I suppose to get it to get a prediction out of the way early, I'm going to go with Arsenal to win on penalties. But who, <laughs> who really, who really knows how that's going to go? I mean, you just don't know what sort of teams are going to be put out. What player, what fitness the players are going to be like? We know Gabriel Jesus is out again with a, a kind of a recurrence, not quite a full recurrence of that knee problem he had last year, but he's had to go back in to have a little bit of a correction done on it. So he's going to be out. Uh, it looks like Manchester City are going to get that Croatian defender Gradiol, so he'll be coming in to strengthen their line. Whether he'll start on Sunday or not is, is to be to be seen, I suppose. And look, we all know that the, these games are kind of, it's a bit of shadow boxing, and no one really takes it too seriously. But the league itself, like you know, Jerry, you're going to have to you're going to have to say that City are, are favourites again. We know Arsenal have strengthened. Kai Havertz has come in. Uh, Jurian Timber has come in uh, to bolster the defence, and Declan Rice, of course, is the headline signing for them. But you know, Man City have the experience. They've done it all before. They've got Erling Haaland, who is probably worth, you know, 40-plus goals a season and however many points he'll bring as well. So City still the favourites. I don't know if Arsenal will run them as close as they did last year. It's it's hard to do it two two years running, even though they have brought in reinforcements. Um, and you know yourself, Stray, trying to predict what Arsenal will do at any point is difficult. But mm. I, I think City, look, City still have to be favourites. I'd give them the, the, the vote. You'd like to think Arsenal would, would push them even further than they did last year. They tailed off a little bit towards the end of last season, even though it was still a good campaign for Arsenal. But look, City still have to be favourites with the resources mm. they have, with the players they have at the minute. I know they've lost one or two, but they still have an absolutely unbelievable squad. So they'll be favourites. Um, mm. I think Liverpool might be Liverpool fans might be a little bit concerned about how they've done in the transfer window. Uh, they've lost a little bit and they haven't really strengthened in that midfield area. But um, yeah, I think it's going to be between Arsenal and City again. Chelsea might might be a bit soon for them under Pochettino. Manchester United as well. I'm not really sure if they've strengthened enough, uh, particularly up front. But let's yeah, probably Man City and Arsenal going for it again. Uh, but let's see what happens. A keeper and a 20 goal striker and Arsenal would have a chance. But we we'll leave that till next week when we look ahead to the <laughs> league itself. Anyway, the big uh, game the weekend here locally is the Camogie All Ireland Intermediate Final. Me, they're in the final at last, up against Derry. Will they win it, David? Yeah, I mean they've been knocking on the door for so many years now at this stage with the you know the fact that they were in so many semi-finals and you know could, could, just couldn't quite get themselves to a final. They've only won this competition once. That was the way back in in 2017. I remember sitting in the studio. I think it was Frank Dempsey was in commentary for for those two matches. They beat Cork in a replay. Derry themselves have only won it once as well. They they got to the final in 2012 and they beat Galway. So neither side is exactly weighed down with silverware at this grade. Um, me, as Brendan Skeehan has said all the way through the season, that they've, they've had a lot of new players come in. I was listening again to his, his chat with Colm uh, on the LMFM website earlier today, and 
he kind of almost set, was taken aback and surprised by the fact they've gotten this far. You know, they've got new players in, the likes of Tara Murphy, Rachel O'Neill, Abby Donnelly have come in and, and a few others as well and have done really well. And that semi-final over, win over Westmead, he talked about that as well, about having a point to prove because Westmead beat them out the gate really in the group stages. And I think we were chatting about that game a few weeks ago and I think I've just about backed Mead to get through it, but it wasn't with any huge confidence given what had happened against Westmead in the group. So, you know, they beat Derry in the league, Mead as well. So all things again would suggest that this is going to be a very tight game, but Mead are going to be looking towards, you know, the experience in that, in that squad, Claire Coffey, Tracy King, particularly Aoife Minogue, who's a dual player, was playing with the footballers this year. And, you know, I've seen a bit of her this year and she'd get on, I think it's fair to say she'd get any get on any senior intercounty camogie team in the country. She's absolutely outstanding. Uh, just just such a class act. So they're going to be looking to those experienced players to, to, to kind of build a platform for them. But there's nothing to suggest that they can't get over the line. They were in Crow Park earlier this year for the league against Kerry. We know they lost that final narrowly, but I think that will stand to them. And I think that they're they're well set to get the win. And if they can if they can perform to the level and, and the, the occasion doesn't get them too much, which I don't think it will, I think me they'll get the win. Oh, it'd be fantastic if they did at last. As you say, they've been knocking on the door for so long and if there's any justice, they'll go uh, one better and lift that title. What an occasion it'll be if they do it. But as you said, it's a tight game. It's a tight call between Derry and Mead. But that match on Sunday at Croke Park, the intermediate Camogie final and, of course, the juniors on as well and the senior. Anyway, David, that's uh, it for today with you. You're heading for Daily Mount this evening? I am indeed. I'll be spinning over there later on a short, a short trip from you, Jerry. So it's not, it's not too bad. So I'm looking, for, I'm looking forward to it. It's always, it's always a great venue to go to. The atmosphere is always great yes. there. As you said, Drogheda's, Drogheda's record isn't great. They've had a few spankings even in the time I've been covering them up there. But I'm, I'm confident tonight, Jerry, that they're going to, they're going to dig out a result. I'll be tuned in, listening, and listen to David bringing us the uh, live commentary on LMFM.ie online or on your app. Until next week. Thanks a million, David. Thanks, Jerry. Take care. David Sheehan there, presenter of Sunday Sport, and he covers the Drogheda games and more besides as well for us here on LMFM Radio. That's it for another week. Thank you to all our guests who joined us during the week. To you, our listeners who are with us every day, we appreciate your company. And to my producer, Louise Walsh, I couldn't do this without her. Thanks a million, Louise. Eddie Caffrey's on his way with the drive here on LMFM Radio. Have a lovely bank holiday weekend, no matter what it brings weather-wise. Enjoy it. Enjoy the time off. We'll be back on Tuesday with Late Lunch coming live from Claughterhead Pier. If you're in the area, give us a shout. Have a nice weekend. See you then. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.